Welcome to the Arlington Street Church podcast. Founded in 1729, Arlington Street continues today as a gathering place for progressive people of faith in the greater Boston area and beyond. We are located at the corner of Arlington and Boylston Streets, across from the Public Garden in Boston, Massachusetts. Please visit ASCBoston.org for more information about this historic Unitarian Universalist congregation. Arlington Street Church, gathered in love and service for justice and peace. For the past 30 years, Mount Auburn Cemetery has hosted an evening solstice event, and it has become enough of the fixture in the local holiday season that tickets for those nights sell out fairly quickly. What began as a simple candle lighting ceremony has become an amazing light display, outdoors and indoors too, that evokes the grandeur of the celestial among the graves of the dear departed. The tickets that are the absolute last to go, if you find yourself hunting for some at the 11th hour, are those for the so-called quiet hours at midweek when the cemetery atmosphere is intentionally more subdued and might feel more suitable for those who are grieving, have sensory integration issues, or are trying to avoid larger crowds for whatever reason. People do not mind wandering a cemetery at night, not with others at least, but they do resist wandering it in silence. That phrase, quiet as the grave, can strike fear in some hearts. Not mine. I have long taken a certain solace in that sort of quiet. This year, I managed to get a ticket for one of these quiet hours at Mount Auburn. And on Wednesday, I wandered the graveyard in relative silence, alone. Now, I should tell you that I spend an awful lot of time in that graveyard. The National Historic Landmark straddles the line dividing Cambridge from Watertown, and while its iconic entrance is in Cambridge, the vast majority of its grounds are in Watertown, where I live. They sprawl over roughly 175 acres and contain more than 10 miles of roads and paths along rolling terrain. In fact, Mount Auburn offers the largest contiguous open space in all of Watertown, and arguably, the loveliest. The cemetery gates are only minutes from my house. Because I enjoy a longer outdoor stroll, I spend several days a week there walking hours and hours at a stretch in good weather and bad. I know its landscape intimately, and I have watched the seasons change throughout the year. With the advent of winter, I have seen the arrival of Yule logs and Christmas wreaths at a number of the 100,000 grave sites in Mount Auburn. I have witnessed the trees drop their few remaining leaves and then stand with bare branches braving the wind and stretching upwards to catch the snow flurries just starting to fall. Under gray skies, I have seen several angels appearing with minimal fanfare, amidst disappearing foliage, so many angels carved from stone rising among the monuments and headstones, wordlessly heralding their tidings to the living as well as to the dead. American poet Theodore Rothko 
famously wrote, in a dark time, the eye begins to see. In a dark time, the eye begins to see, to see stars and to see shadows alike. And in a quiet time, the ear begins to hear, to hear those sounds behind the silence, the murmuring of breezes and whispers of heartbeats and echoes of angelic tidings of comfort. Everything sighs. Blessed are you who mourn, for you shall be comforted. The winter solstice calls upon all our senses and finally upon our grander and wiser imaginings to help us truly know and celebrate this world spinning on its axis so that we may more fully inhabit it while we can with its inevitable spans of darkness alongside its glorious spans of light. In our country today, we have become accustomed to punctuating the holidays with many distinctive sights and smells and sounds of the season, lights blinking, bells jingling the works. The result can be a degree of sensory overload not entirely keeping with the original spirit of the winter solstice. Something Mount Auburn does is invite visitors at its evening event to write a prayer or intention on a card and tie it with twine to a public display in one of its light-dappled chapels. I wrote down words from a Gaelic blessing that you may recognize. A variant of it appears in our gray hymnal. Deep peace of the shining stars to you. Deep peace of the gentle night to you. Moon and stars pour their healing light on you. Deep peace, deep peace to you. I hope that your holiday season contains a few quiet hours at minimum that allow you to connect with the deepest possible peace of the season in sincere and sacred silence, alone and in good company, either or both. Deep peace. I wish that to every last one of you this solstice. Deep, deeper, and deepest peace. A Christmas allegory. One day, back in the days of horse and buggies, winter came, hanging low over the pastures on Old County Road, December gray clouds left a dusting of snow, sparkling pink in the setting sun. And as the wind kicked up, the cows headed in, their breath steaming, for the night would be cold. Gone now, all quiet, still, a film of ice formed slowly over the trough, the fields empty. When all of a sudden, up from a snow-covered tuft popped Morris the Mouse. He shook off the snow from his natty town clothes and said to his mice mates, come along now, our work in the fields is done. Let's off to town to find a nice house, for a house with no mouse is no home indeed. So the merry mice band 
trapped through the fields and along the streams. They scurried over stone walls till they arrived at town hall. The street lamps were lit, gaslight casting its warm glow. All the grand houses were decked out for Christmas, festooned with wreaths, garlands, welcoming candles flickering in the windows. Hurrah, hurrah, exclaimed Morris and his mates. Of these houses, us mouses shall make fine homes indeed. A warm place by the hearth, a kitchen cupboard, the cheese board, cheese. And so each scurried off to their own brightly lit house. All that is, except for Morris the mouse. He stood looking up at a very fine house. But unlike the others, well, not so well lit, rather dark and a bit down on its luck. By the bell pull, a sign, Sojourner's Home for Seekers and Wanderers. Curious, hmm, thought Morris the mouse. I think this house needs a mouse. So up he leapt upon the pull. He clung with his little mice hands and he swung and he swung till he sounded the bell. Ring, ring. He dropped to the mat and looked up at the door. Open it swung, and there she stood. Mary Frances Chancy, the keeper of the house. Who goes there? She brayed into the wind. I can't see you. Some kid playing tricks? Jumping up and down, Morris said no. It's me, Morris the mouse. I think your house needs a mouse. She looked down with a frown. She shook her finger. She stomped her feet. She even made an annoying sound with her tongue and teeth. No, she said, away with you now. There will be no mouse in this house. I fear you might give us a fright or haplessly cause harm, now off. But before she could slam the door, Morris flew under her skirts. Respectfully, he looked up not at her knickers, for he did not wish to snicker. Once in the house, she called to her cat, Mrs. Coulter, get that mouse out of this house. Through the grand rooms, now only rarely used, Mrs. Coulter gave chase over threadbare carpets and scuffed wooden floors, up over tea-stained sofas and by someone's old loafers, then down a hall when slam went the door. Alone in the dark was Morris the mouse. With all the doors shut tight, he said to himself, now this is a fright, all alone in the hall. Perhaps I'll just sit down and have a sit for a bit. So he did. He sat down. He crossed his little mouse legs into the lotus position. And he began to chant. Um, I'm gonna lose my mind in the hall. No, no. That's not how it goes. 
Um, am I gonna get back at that nasty cat? No, that's not helpful either. Giving up on the sit, Morris spied a stack of boxes down the hall. So up he leapt inside and he found decorations. I may be stuck in the hall, but it need not be such a pall. So up on the wall, he hung bits of holly and winterberry. He lit tea candles up and down the hall. And of bits of tinsel and pine, he made himself a fine, comfy nest and settled down for some rest. Then all of a sudden, one of the doors creaked open. It was Penny, the pigtailed girl. Up to pop Morris from out of his nest. I'm Morris the mouse, can I stay in your house? That Mary Frances Chancy thinks I'm some louse. Don't mind her and that nasty old cat. Come, let's have some fun. I love what you've done. And so Penny and Morris grab decorations and bedazzled Penny's room. And in the window, they lit a candle. Out in the gloaming, as snowflakes drifted past the streetlights, the townsfolk took notice and they smiled. A candle in the window, boughs of green upon the sill, even a tree with tinsel. Such had they not seen in years at the sojourner's home for seekers and wanderers. While there were still many darkened windows in that big old house, that of Penny, the pigtailed girl, shone brightly. Yes, the townsfolk thought, decking the halls, it really does make a difference. And looking out the window, Penny and Morris sound the townsfolk as they started to gather in front of the house, all bundled up in long woolen scarves and mittens. They smiled and they waved. And then a joyous sound started to be heard. Was it singing? Yes. There was singing in front of the house, and it brought joy to all, even to Mary Frances Chancy and her old orange cat. Come Christmas, come. This piece was written by someone named Don Groves from Anchorage, Alaska, and appeared in an old anthology of holiday readings that were first heard on NPR. It's titled A Family Christmas, and some years ago I used it to preface a holiday sermon that was titled Finding Hope. A Family Christmas. My father told me this story. It occurred in the early 20s in Seattle before I was born. He was the oldest of six brothers and a sister, some of whom had moved away from home. The family finances had taken 
a real beating. My father's business had collapsed, jobs were almost non-existent, and the country was in a near depression. We had a tree for Christmas that year, but no presents. We simply couldn't afford them. On Christmas Eve, we all went to bed in pretty low spirits. Unbelievably, when we woke up on Christmas morning, there was a mound of presents under the tree. We tried to control ourselves at breakfast, but we rushed through the meal in record time, and then the fun began. My mother went first. We surrounded her in anticipation, and when she opened her package, we saw that she had been given an old shawl that she had misplaced several months earlier. My father got an old axe with a broken handle. My sister got her old slippers. One of the boys got a pair of patched and wrinkled trousers. I got a hat, the same one that I thought I had left in a restaurant back in November. Each old cast-off came as a total surprise. Before long, we were laughing so hard that we could barely pull the strings on the next package. But where had this largesse come from? It was my brother, Morris. For several months, he had been secreting away old things that he knew we wouldn't miss. And then on Christmas Eve, after the rest of us had gone to bed, he had quietly wrapped up the presents and placed them under the tree. I remember this as one of the finest Christmases we ever had. My wish, my prayer for you this year is that you may find hope by wanting what you have. Want what you have. The story is called The Big Blue Blob at Christmas. Gus was 10, and for as long as he could remember, he loved Christmas. He even kept a Christmas countdown in his room all year long. But one day, not long before Christmas, something terrible happened, and Gus felt so sad that he couldn't feel anything else. After not too much time, Gus had to go back to normal, except he didn't feel normal. Gus was supposed to be making a Merry Christmas sign for his classroom decorating party. And as he sat at the table with untouched markers, he started to cry. Try not to cry, honey, his mom said. It'll only make it worse. As Gus wiped away his tears, he saw a little blue blob rest on his hand. He tried to make his tears stop, and the blue blob got a little bigger. Scared, he shoved the blob off of his hand, but when he left the room, the blob followed him. At St. Daniel's School the next day, Gus's teacher, Mrs. Raymond, asked them all to sit in a circle. 
let's all take a turn and share what you're excited about for Christmas. Gus tried to feel excited, but he could not. He felt the blue blob moving around in his backpack. Later that week, Gus attended choir practice for the Christmas Eve service. Mr. Bruno pulled out a giant box of bells. This will make our music sound even more joyful on this joyful day. Gus tried to feel happy, but he couldn't. He didn't like the sound of the bells, but his blob seemed to. His blue blob was floating around and grew a little with each ding and dong. No one else seemed to notice the blob, but it wouldn't leave Gus alone. That weekend, Gus went to visit his Nana, who was his favorite person. He always helped Nana do the shopping for Christmas dinner. They got to the store and walked the aisles. As Nana reached for a bag of peppermints, Gus remembered how much his friend Tony loved peppermint ice cream. He tried to stop his tears and the blob burst out of his bag, bigger and scarier than ever. Gus yelled. Nana walked towards him, took his hand and gently said, it's okay, Gus, let's go home. Nana made <clears throat> a pot of hot chocolate and they sat together on the couch what scared you, my Gus, Nana asked. Her eyes sparkled. She always knew what to say. Nana, there's this big blue blob that showed up when everything went wrong. It, kept, it keeps getting bigger and scarier. I see, said Nana. And what have you been doing with this blob? I've tried hiding it, running from it, throwing it away. Nothing works. What if it crushes me? Oh, Gus. That is your sadness. Sadness is hard to feel, especially during Christmas when everyone wants you to be happy. But instead of shoving it away, it's important to be kind to your sadness. When my sadness comes, I invite it to sit down. Can you do that? I don't think my blob will listen, Gus said. But when Gus invited his blob to sit down, the blob listened and sat still beside him. Good job, Gus. Now when my sadness comes, I hold it tight. Sadness often shivers and I try to hold my sadness with care and keep it warm. Gus reached over and squeezed his sadness in a hug. As he did, his sadness got a little warmer. You're doing so good, Gus. Now it's important to let our sadness be here, to not hurt it or push it away, but to make space for it to be here. Can you try to do this? I don't know. I don't want my sadness to be here for Christmas. I know Gus, but sometimes sadness comes to the holidays. We must welcome sadness. You are important and your sadness is important. Gus left Nana's knowing he would be back in a few days for Christmas Eve. He thought about Nana's advice and letting his sadness come with him. When Gus and his moms got to Nana's on Christmas Eve, Gus saw that the table was set with the fancy plates. Gus looked for his name tag. His mom was on one side of him. 
When he looked at the other plate, he saw a new tag, Gus's blue blob. As he read the tag, Nana came up to him. I'm so glad you are here, Gus. You and your sadness are welcome here. I made a plate for my sadness too. Gus smiled, a real smile this time, and his blob got a little smaller. All of him could come to Christmas. Christmas or any of the winter holidays can be a joyful time, but it can also be a time when sadness abounds, made harder by the pressure we might feel to be happy. This holiday season, if you are grieving, if you are nervous about seeing family, if you feel lonely, if you feel sad, you are not alone. For many of us, the holidays are blue. May there be a place at the table for whatever you feel this year. The best gift I ever got might have been a dictionary or the Northern Lights or a bike. It might have been one of you climbing up into the high pulpit to stand with me as I gave the benediction at a friend's memorial service. Might have been the diapers a woman gave me when I was stuck with two babies in the Newark airport overnight. Or the look on my grandfather's face when I handed him my Harvard diploma. The best gift I ever got might have been Miss Martin's teaching me to read. Especially if you're not feeling particularly grateful, I invite you to your own best gifts reflection. This is a story adapted from American author Jacqueline Mitchard. My cousin Marley and I grew up close too close, we were separated by only one year and one floor. She could hear my tantrums. I could hear her parents fight. Both were frequent. One Christmas, my parents finished the unheard of blue collar feat of building an apartment over my father's plumbing shop. I called Marley every night we had a formica table. We had vinyl love seats with tiki heads. We had a velvet painting of Elvis. I got used to the click of the telephone being hung up on me until Marley's dad got a Cadillac. It was really used, but it was really something. It was also a peace offering to Marley's mom for my uncle's latest transgression. He had to go all the way to California to fetch my aunt from her parents' home. Marley was left with us. Nobody, least of all my aunt and uncle, bothered to think about Christmas presents. The apartment had just about broken the bank. In fact, my brother, a toddler, got the same hobby horse for the second time. He was too young to appreciate it, my mother says. My brother has never forgiven this. 
But because I was old enough to have a memory, my mother had scrimped and saved to give me just a few, but really wonderful presents. On the night before Christmas Eve, she called me into her bedroom. There on her bed were ice skates, a red grown-up cardigan, a jewelry box with a ballerina that twirled to music, and a mouse house with soft gray mouse parents and baby mouse twins Tiny is the end of my child's pinky. These are yours, said my mother. But Marley has nothing. She can have the ice skates, I said quickly. I don't like the cold. Okay, said my mother, but so slowly I knew that more was expected. And I knew that what was expected was the mouse house. I wept. I cried. My mother held me. But on Christmas morning, when my cousin opened her entirely unexpected gifts, she fixed her green eyes first on my mother recognizing that there was a Santa Claus. And then she turned to look at me. A door in my heart opened. I have never been the same. In the years that followed, many holidays were flush for my family. Gifts were piled under the tree. But by that time, I was too old for mouse dollhouses. I've never forgotten mine. I've searched in vain a hundred antiques websites for something like it. But what I remember more is the look that lit Marley's eyes when she saw it. So hurt and prepared to be proud. And then that look that changed my life. One of the best gifts I've ever received. Beloved spiritual companions, what's the best gift you ever received? What's the best gift you have to give? In this magical season and all the days of our lives, may gratitude and generosity be ours. We've just passed the 30th anniversary of the Macy's Santa protest. Do you know the story of the Black Friday when the Santas stormed Macy's? 
At the height of the AIDS crisis, Mark Woodley was caring for his best friend who was dying of the virus. At the same time, Mark was managing his own treatment journey with HIV. Although he was an architect by training, Mark answered an ad in the Village Voice for Macy's Santas. He says, it's hard to be depressed when you're around an excited little kid. It was just magical. You know, little kids coming in and the wonder in their eyes. And I was part of that. I've never been so loved. I mean, it was love for Santa, but I was the recipient. Mark cherished the experience of bringing joy to children and was delighted when Macy's invited him back for the next holiday season. In the intervening year, Mark began taking AZT, one of the earliest treatments for AIDS. When he gave an honest account of his medication regimen on his paperwork, Macy's withdrew the job offer. The AIDS activist group, ACT UP, got wind of what happened and decided that something needed to be done. This is organizer John Winkleman. We found cheap Santa suits at a novelty shop and 22 of us met at Macy's flagship store on Black Friday, the biggest shopping day of the year. We walked in together singing Christmas carols. Everyone's cheering and clapping because they think it's so cute and adorable to see this gaggle of Santas singing Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. But once we got to the middle of the cosmetics aisle, the chains came out of our Santa sleeves. We chained ourselves together in a circle, facing outward. And then we started singing, Santa Claus has HIV, fa-la-la-la-la, la-la-la-la. Macy's won't rehire he, fa-la-la-la-la, la-la-la-la. The police were called, and 19 Santas were arrested. The next day, the newspaper ran photos of Santa being dragged out of Macy's in handcuffs. The strategy was genius. The Santas were able to bring creativity and humor to their protest while knowing they were doing it because people they loved were dying. They forced the media and the public to talk about AIDS at a time when both really wanted to ignore it. Mark eventually won an out-of-court settlement from Macy's, but he never went back to the store as Santa. In the years that followed, Mark went on to be the beloved Santa at several pediatric AIDS clinics. Leave it to Santa. On a really good day, Love wins. Merry Christmas. I love you. 
And now for our benediction, I invite you to put your hands over your heart in namaste. I honor the divine in you. We gather in the chill of winter, finding warmth from each other, nourishing faith where reason fails. Grateful for miracles, large and small. Let us rejoice in the wonder of making light in the darkness and the miracle of love. Let us keep this faith, beloveds, and pass it on. The service begins when the service ends. Bless your hearts. I love you. Amen. visit ASCBoston.org for more information about this historic Unitarian Universalist congregation. Arlington Street Church, gathered in love and service for justice and peace.